You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Nutmeg Arena podcast brought to you by the Nutmeg Assist. This is a special episode. We have a really really special guest on today's episode. He is a charismatic podcaster, a die-hard Chelsea fan, one of the best accounts that you can follow on social media as well. I welcome none other than Alex Goldberg to the show. Welcome Alex. Hey, how you doing, man? Really a big pleasure to be on. I appreciate the kind words and yeah, excited to talk football. Yep, I I definitely appreciate you coming onto the show, taking some time off for this episode. Thank you so much first of all and I hope everything is fine there right now despite you no know, things that that's going on in the US probably for the last maybe the last week or so. Yeah, it's it's rough stuff here, but I'm safe with my family and I just hope obviously this country takes a turn for the better as soon as possible. Yep, absolutely. And well and we are going to be talking a lot about Chelsea which is your area. We'll also be talking a little on the Premier League in general as well, but the first thing that I want to start with is the return of the Premier League. June seventeenth is the date that's been given out, and the Premier League is back. And what I want to ask you is, do you think it's a safe decision? I mean, what is your opinion on the decision to restart the Premier League? Um, well, I don't think it's the safest decision. I mean, I don't think the decision was made because the first and foremost priority for the Premier League is players' safety. I think we obviously can acknowledge that it's a monetary thing. They don't want to lose the money. They don't want to obviously lose specifically the TV money. They want to finish the season. The idea of voiding the season null and void, it makes them sick to their stomach and Hey, and to a certain extent, I get it because some clubs could really be in trouble financially. Some clubs could go under, maybe not Premier League teams, but in general, you're going to be really cutting some of these teams off financially at the knees if you were to null and void it. But I definitely think that it wouldn't be returning this quickly if player safety was the first priority of theirs. With all of that said, very good, very promising that the last round tests had zero positive ones, so it certainly seems like they are moving in the right direction. I know phase two just started today for Chelsea, so they can get a little bit more uh, training with contact, so it is starting to feel like real football again, or at least that real football is coming. We obviously have been watching the German League now, the Bundesliga, for a couple weeks, and for the most part, I would say that's been a success. So I think that's also kind of helped propel other leagues. So, you know, I, I did start to feel like it wasn't going to get voided a while ago. So I have been conditioning myself, preparing myself for Chelsea to finish the 1920 season, however long that was going to take. And now it looks like we'll be finishing the season in June and July in albeit a very different type of season where going to be a congested schedule obviously no fans but it's going to be a lot of games in a short amount of time so it'll be important for all these teams to be fit and healthy chelsea look like for the most part they are much more fit and healthy than they were before the pandemic but then again so are many teams so even playing field there so it's going to be an interesting time if people want to say the integrity of the game is out the window for the rest of the season fine but at least it's kind of a level playing field for all 
So I can't lie. I am excited about being able to watch Chelsea in just a few weeks. Great. And with the French League, the Ligue 1, we saw that they decided to cancel the league. So <laughs> the results are definitely going to be announced. But it's not null and void there. But they said, OK, let's go and cancel this. I guess the Eredivisie has followed the same thing as well. And these two leagues probably came under a bit of criticism, especially the Eredivisie because Akmar was having a really good season and they might or they could have probably won the title as well. So that probably seems a little unfair on them probably as well. And and there were a lot of shouts of, uh, I mean, a lot of discussions on Twitter, especially uh, there's, there's a gang for the Null and Void. And, you know, it, it's kind of, it's basically Twitter. So, yeah, we had a lot of, uh, discussion on this already on social media and yes finally the league is returning and coming on to Chelsea now the first thing that I want to ask you is about Frank Lampard's return yes he did a really really good job with Derby County last season in the championship unluckily he couldn't get them promoted came into Chelsea with the transfer ban in had to adjust with the players that he had and to be honest, in my opinion, I think he's done a really, really amazing job so far with the resources that he's had this season. Even in the Champions League, yep, you you are down by three goals to probably a rejuvenated Bayern Munich side. But in the Premier League, you sit in fourth, which is pretty good for probably for, 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 for a guy like Lampard who's in the beginning of his managerial career. So, I mean, I, I know you're a big, big fan of Frank Lampard. I've listened to a lot of your episodes on the byline as well. And I know this might have been discussed, but probably if you had to rate Frank Lampard's first season at Chelsea to, to, to the previous managers that you had, Mourinho, Conte, Sarri, I mean, if you if if you had to compare Lampard's first season with these guys, how would you actually put it? Well, that's tough, just because those guys were under much different context. Those guys didn't have a transfer ban to deal with. Those guys didn't have necessarily the same setup that's currently happening in the Premier League, where Manchester City and Liverpool are so far ahead. I mean, maybe Maurizio Sarri did last season, but once again, he had a team that wasn't under a transfer van. And more importantly, he had a team that had an Azar and all those managers did Mourinho, Conte, and of course, sorry. So having, in my opinion, the best player in the Premier league of the last decade, or at least on consensus, that's a pretty big helpful hand. So it does skew the context. If I'm going to compare those guys versus Lampard, but to answer your question, I think, first of all, Lampard, if you isolate his job and you don't compare him to those guys, he's done a great job. I'd give him probably an 8 out of 10. But if I were to also think about how those guys do in his position this season with a transfer ban, having to use more youth, no Eden Hazard, I'm not sure they would have done that much better. In fact, maybe they would have done worse. Now, that's not saying that Frank Lampard is a better manager already than those guys. No, I rate. Antonio Conte very highly as a manager, really highly. I may not love him as a person overall or at least love what he did in the second 
season with Chelsea. But nonetheless, I think very highly in his football mind. I think Maurizio Sarri is a pretty good football manager. He's very specific and he's kind of uh, one trick pony, but he's a pretty good football manager. And Jose Mourinho, I may not rate him much now, but he's the greatest of all time for Chelsea managerial wise. But their strengths don't really line up to meshing all that well with this current Chelsea team or this predicament that Chelsea had, that Lampard had. I don't know if they would have favored young players. And fine, they don't have to favor young players. But in this situation, it was smart to favor young players. It was smart to say goodbye to David Luiz and give Fikayo Tomori a chance. It was smart to make sure Reese James stays with the team and not go after El Cid Husay, and that's what Sari wanted to do. And who knows, maybe if Sari was in charge, the rumors were that Sari really wanted Chelsea to actually appeal for the transfer ban to be frozen. They appealed the transfer ban, but not actually for it to be frozen to the court of arbitration of sport. So I'm led to believe that Sari may have tried to favor older players and maybe not recall all those young players, which would have been, I think now in hindsight, the incorrect decision because we've already seen Lampard whatever he's done this season we now know that there's a foundation being built every single youngster that played for Chelsea this season had their moment and now we have something to really project off of so I don't think sorry would have done that I don't think Jose Mourinho would have done that I think as much as we complained about Frank Lampard playing Willian and Antonio Rudiger so much this season Mourinho would have played them even more if that's even possible so I don't think those guys, given this situation, would have done all that better. The one I didn't mention, Antonio Conte, the only reason why I think Conte might have done better than at least Mourinho and Sarri with this predicament is Conte's pretty good at taking non-superstars, maybe role players, and making it a good, cohesive team. He's pretty good at doing it very quickly. So maybe he would have been able to produce some type of result similar to what Lampard has done with at least where they are in the standings. But in terms of how Lampard has not only had the team in fourth place for almost the whole season, but has also given fans and the club hope for the future with all the young players already showing what they can do, I don't think any of those guys could have done better in this situation. So 8 out of 10 overall just for the job he did. But grade compared to how those other managers would have done, tough to give a grade out of 10 because it's a weird thing to say, but I would say he would do as good or if not better than all those other guys in this situation. And you you just talked about the youth players that you had as well, the likes of Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, Fikayo Tomori, Reese James especially as well. These guys have been really, really amazing. And recently we saw Billy Gilmore also coming into the frame. And, and I'm a Liverpool fan. I saw the FA Cup game. And I, I definitely think Billy Gilmore was exceptional. Definitely the man of the match for me. He was everywhere. And I, and, and I also felt that he did the Jorginho, the Jorginho role better than Jorginho himself in that particular game. So you have a really good young set of players. But you, you also bought Christian Pulisic, the American superstar as well. Uh, I mean, it was obviously done last January, but... You guys caught him in the summer and it's it's been a kind of uh, an up and down season for him because of the injuries that he's had. But he's also a really, really promising signing. But if you look at the youth players that you have, do you think that you lack some firepower up front? 
because look if you look at uh, the defense it's kind of okay probably you guys might need a left back because Aspili Quetta is aging and he is on the decline Marcus Alonso although he's kind of looked a little better under Lampard he's still not really reliable as a left back and on the right side Reece James is good but obviously Aspili Quetta can probably deputize for him probably you might need someone in the se- i mean in at center back probably someone to partner with Mori because Christensen for me hasn't been really good Rudiger yes but again a little inconsistent i would say in midfield i think you have one of the best midfield in the leagues Matteo Kovacic who's been one of the best players this season Kovacic a wonderful signing he's been from Real Madrid as well Jorginho you have uh, the young gilmore mason mount ruben doctor's cheek is going to come in soon as well and golo kante the main man as well you have a lot of good players in midfield ross barkley although he is again another inconsistent player but if you look up front um, if if you look for a replacement for tammy abraham i don't think you have much depth there batchuai although he's done pretty well in his loan spells when he is gone out he hasn't shown the same promise or the impact at chelsea that probably you or the chelsea fans would have wished for so do you think you guys need improvement up front and and i'm definitely asking for improvement in addition to hakim ziyech who you just signed as well uh yeah i mean i definitely think chelsea need to add at least one more attacking player maybe not much more than that because i do think it's important to kind of count on christian pulisic callum hudson-odoi and ruben loftus-cheek being a little bit more injury free is that a risk to count on that sure but every team has to count on their star players especially players they've invested a lot in and they've invested a lot in those three pulisic hudson-odoi and loftus-cheek they have to and uh, to some extent count on those players to be fit or else why would you buy contingency plans or why would you invest in those players so i think only one more attacking player is probably the way to go because like you said you also have Akeem Ziyech coming into the mix so should that attacking player be a striker should it be a winger should it be a two and one player should it be a striker and a winger Yeah, maybe the latter. Maybe somebody who's got positional versatility. Maybe somebody like a Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. Maybe someone like a Timo Werner. Maybe someone like a Kai Havertz. Now, the one exception I'll make is, of course, Jadon Sancho, who's just a winger, but he is too good to pass up on. So I'm interested in those type of players. Even a Richarlison from Everton, from Everton, who can play both positions as well. And I think Frank Lampard does rate. that type of a player obviously somebody who is good no matter where he plays but someone who can play a few different spots i think that's the allure of Hakim Ziyech as well he can play a few different spots so i definitely think it's important for Tammy Abraham to have more competition not because i don't believe in Tammy i actually very much believe in Tammy i think he should be the starting striker now and in the future but he needs somebody there that's a little bit more serious than Michi Batshuayi to just make him fear for his job a little bit. Olivier Giroud, he could stay because obviously he did trigger that one year extension, but he also still could leave. And triggering that extension does not mean he's absolutely staying. It just means that technically now Chelsea have him on the books for one more year. So if they were to sell him, they'll now get compensation for him. So if he stays, well, you're going to either need to get another striker, so Michi Batshuayi on his way out, 
You're either going to need to get another outright striker or, like I said, you get somebody who can play the wing and the striker position. So you have Tammy Abraham and then let's just for sake of argument, say Aubameyang or Werner. So you have Tammy Abraham and then one of those guys. And then Giroud is kind of third string striker, but maybe second string striker if those guys are playing on the wing. Now, I just think that with the bodies you have between Mason Mount, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Christian Pulisic, Tammy Abraham, Hakeem Ziyech, you really shouldn't add much more than one player onto that attack. Because like I said, you got to give those guys chances to get plenty of game time to develop. Because in the long run, that's what's, that's what's best for Chelsea Football Club. All those players I just mentioned, except for Hakeem Ziyech and kind of Loftus-Cheek, are still really young and need game time to develop. So you don't want to outright block them, but you don't want to scoff at the opportunity to sign someone talented. So one of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, Jaden Sancho, that's what Chelsea need to be targeting, should be targeting. Maybe a Richarlison, maybe some names I haven't mentioned, but that's the direction I would go. Either get a two-in-one player or just get a really good winger like Jaden Sancho to add on to what you already have. But I would say about one more real quality attacking addition for Chelsea is needed. All right. Yeah. And looking at the performances that you've had this season, um, Bournemouth's kind of been a bogey team for you guys probably in the last three, four years. And you guys also lost to Manchester United twice. And it's it's quite it's been mixed. Uh, I mean, it mixed set of results. You've done really good against the likes of Spurs. Uh, in, in the one game against Liverpool, you guys lost. In the second half, Chelsea really turned up in that game too. Against Arsenal, the first game was a really good win. The second game, it was a draw, unfortunately. So it, it's kind of been a mixed results against the top teams. Uh, against City as well, you guys played well for some time, but then. City became City in the end, but and did at any point of this season did uh, the performance or or the results kind of concern you? Uh, yeah, I mean, sure, it did start to concern me. I would say after the big win streak, there was really a lot of rough results, as you kind of just mentioned there. So I was concerned because it felt like there were a lot of inconsistencies from the team and from Frank Lampard. Now, I wasn't down necessarily on Lampard overall or down on the young players or even some of the senior players I rate, but it felt like there wasn't a clear enough plan or direction. But in reality, when I did take a step back from it, whether I got really angry after a game if I took a step back a few hours later, I did kind of chalk it up to, well, these are the growing pains. These are the growing pains that we signed up for. It's a young squad. It's a team overall that hasn't really been together for that long. It's a manager, an assistant manager, and really a whole coaching staff that is new to at least being in charge of the senior team at Chelsea. Sure, they know some of the younger players, but it's a very, very new club. It's a very new environment. We said when Frank Lampard was appointed manager, and we knew what the squad was going to look like for the season, that there were going to be a lot of growing pains. And growing pains mean, okay, you're doing well, you're doing well, you're doing well, and then boom, divot. 
and you hit a rut and you have some bad results, some frustrating results, or even just for specific players, they're on form, on form, on form, and then boom, totally drip out of form, dip out of form, and you feel like, oh my God, what the hell happened? And the same could go for Lampard. I thought at times he overmanaged during a rough stretch of games. I thought he got one thing right in one game, and then he wanted to use it exactly for the next game, or he wanted to completely change it for the next game. I thought he was kind of fighting with himself a little bit to figure out what worked. But listen, it's a long season. So for a new squad like that, a new manager, you're going to hit some pretty uncomfortable and some painful growing pains and road bumps. And they did. So I was concerned to answer your question. But actually, when I took a step back from it and I got to really think about it, it made sense. And as weird as it sounds, it made sense that none of it did make sense. Because growing pains are hard to predict. They're hard to exactly forecast. All you can kind of know is you're going to experience them, but you're not exactly going to know what they're going to look like or how they're going to feel. So that was kind of how I thought about things. And some fans were like, oh, come on, Alex, you're always being positive with this new group. But no, I mean, that's just the reality of the situation, especially when you have young players and a young manager. So that was the big thing for me. And I think I can kind of view it a little bit more level-headed than maybe I've been able to in the past, or maybe some fans were able to this season. And the only other thing that made me calm was I knew how many injuries Chelsea were dealing with. It wasn't like they were having all of these growing pains with a completely fit squad. They've had constant injuries. They lead the Premier League in significant injuries this season, meaning players being out for one game or more unavailable because of injury for one game or more. And that's not including the Achilles injuries to Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Callum Hudson-Odoi from last season. That's new injuries sustained in the 2019-20 season. So that's pretty significant too. So I also took that into account and I knew that, well, Lampard's not even able to do everything he wants to do right now because he's been really hit with some unfair and some injuries all over the place. So yeah, we're passionate football fans. So you get worried after a bad string of results, but I knew there was different context to it this time. If this was a big senior squad and you had those results, absolutely. Senior manager, senior squad, and you had some of those results, I would have been way more concerned. But to me, it's all part of the process. Yeah, fair enough. Because after every single game, it's obvious that you get a little frustrated because of the result or because of the performance in general. But... After some time, when you think it through, if you t- when you take logical points into account, like injuries, like the squad you have, when you take the whole picture, it kind of, you know, kind of pulls the whole thing down. So, yes, I mean, I mean, obviously, you see a lot of quick reactions from social media. Those are actually immediate reactions. So, yes, the negativity comes out, but it's it's obviously the immediate frustrations that comes out from the fans in general and actually moving on from i mean before moving on there is one more player that i really really want to discuss about and probably ask you about your take on him it's it's kind of uh, what do you call it it's probably you could call it a little unfortunate but He's not been really good either, probably, in, 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 in his first two years at Chelsea. Yes, I'm talking about Chelsea's record signing, Kepa Ariza Balaga. He has got benched a lot of times for Willy Caballero. And even under Frank Lampard, he's not kind of been, you know, a sure, start, sure short starter as well. 
So, what's your take on Kepa in general? Because we we saw that we saw a lot of things last season under Sari, and there was one particular incident as well. But yeah, that was you could, you could probably say that that incident was a little overcooked by the media and by in social media as well. But on an, I mean, in, in in a full perspective, if you had to judge Kepa's probably first two seasons at Chelsea out of ten. How much would you rate him? Okay, so grouping both of his seasons at Chelsea, you want me to grade him, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so, man, that's probably taking a 7.5 or an 8 from his first season and then giving him about a 4 for this season. So, to be nice, I'll give him a 6.5 out of 10. A 6.5 out of 10. And that's probably not that nice, according to some people. Although, you know, it's not that horrible. 6.5 out of 10. You're 0.5 away from being a 7 out of 10, which most would consider a fairly good grade. But overall, I think you can hear by my tone, I'm not too impressed. I'm not too impressed because, if anything, I was hoping that his second season would have been the better one. And I know I might be saying that to some just with hindsight. But no, if you had asked me, hey, Alex, when Kepa was signed, hey, Alex, how do you hope Kepa's career at Chelsea goes? I would say, well, I hope he gets better every year. I hope that his first year, maybe he has some struggles adapting to the Premier League, but he shows promise. Then his second year, he makes a big lo- uh, makes a big jump. He makes a big leap because that's usually the year for many players coming to the Premier League where it kind of fits better. They hit the ground running better. They're more comfortable. They're more confident. So that second year, they make a big leap. Kepa made a big spiral. He made a big fall. And that's not good. That that doesn't make one feel very good. And especially since no matter how you grade Kepa this season, it doesn't look good. If you look at the stats, the stats are really damning, really damning for Kepa. You look at the eye test, it's pretty damning as well. Not commanding really doesn't have much presence back there. You don't feel like he has great command over his back four. Now, the back four still needs to be ironed out, but nonetheless, you don't feel like he's necessarily a huge personality back there. But like I said, also not physically commanding. His wrists also look very weak at times. It looks like he second guesses. He hesitates when players get close on goal where he shouldn't be because he's actually pretty quick and he's one of those keepers that should be off his line fairly quickly. I mean, you even saw Willie Caballero do it a lot better than Kepa towards the end of the season, even though I don't think Caballero is anything special. So even some of the things like Kepa is supposed to be good at, distribution, he's been really poor at this season. So how can you not feel worried about that? You have to feel worried about that. So 6.5 out of 10 that's pretty generous because if anything, I should probably go closer to 5.5 because I don't like the fact that he was good. It wasn't great, by the way, his first season at Chelsea. I think we've kind of overblown it because he did have a big moment in the Europa League. He helped Chelsea get third and win the Europa League. And overall, it felt like it was the beginning of something special. Also, Thibaut Courtois had a horrible season that season with Real Madrid. So I think we all made it to be like we were getting another Petr Cech or another Courtois. So I think we kind of overhyped it a little bit. Nonetheless, it was a good season from him, but then to just very swiftly transition to, let's put it blankly, let's put it blatantly, boldly, a bad season, just a bad season. That doesn't make me feel good. It does not make me feel good. If anything, I would have liked it to be the other way around. Bad to good, not good to bad. So 
I'll go 6.5 out of 10 because, hey, he did kind of finish the, I can't call season, but those last two games leading up to the pandemic well. Good performance against Liverpool in the FA Cup. Good performance against Everton. So two clean sheets in a row. So maybe that benching from Frank Lampard was what Kepa needed. The report was that he was kind of taking his job for granted for much of the season. Frank Lampard didn't like that. Finally benched him. Probably waited too long to bench him. But once he came back, he got two clean sheets in a row. So I don't want to be totally down on the guy. He does have some ability. Let's see if he can really act on it. But nonetheless, 6.5 is what I'll give him. But it might be generous. And I'm worried. I'm worried. Yeah, I do think 6.5 is a bit generous because... Uh, I, I looked at the stats probably uh, a few months back and I saw that he was, I, I guess, among the worst keepers in terms of shot stopping, which is one of the most important traits a goalkeeper should have. So I do think 6.5 is a little bit generous, but I do I do get what you, 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 know, you say and why you rate 6.5 as well. And moving on to one more particular player, who you rate very, very, very highly. Sometimes I do feel like this guy is probably your favorite player. And sometimes I do see you giving some really big hot takes on social media about this guy, comparing this guy with several other superstars. You you obviously know who I'm talking about, Eden I know he's been a really, really exceptional player in the Premier League. An amazing player for Chelsea, a Chelsea legend. If you, if you were to put two words for him, he is a Chelsea legend. And I saw you comparing him with Neymar. And I, I guess you were saying that he is better than Neymar as well, which for me is a hot take. And I would actually like to know why you rate him over Neymar. And if, if you look at the last decade, where do you put him? Or where do you rank him in the last decade? Well, you know, I don't necessarily flat out put him over Neymar, but I can make the argument. I view myself uh, as a good enough debater where I can make that argument. But I've always said if someone wants to say Neymar is better than Azar, I'm not going to argue it. Like I, I will if they want me to, but I totally respect that take. Neymar is an exceptional player, one of the most talented players I've ever witnessed. And really, when we talk about raw ability, one of the most talented players to ever play the game. And he's put up fantastic stats at Barcelona and PSG and for Brazil. So I'm never going to say someone's crazy for saying Neymar's third best in the world or he's better than Ed Nazar. No, but I do think Azar gets way too disrespected by some people, especially some fan bases. And by the way, I don't think he would get respect disrespected by say, let's use, for example, the Liverpool fan base, if he was a Liverpool player, they'd be saying the same things that Chelsea fans say for him. It's not this thing where Chelsea fans or as our fans in general are like twisted in the head or they are made differently than other people. No, it's about cognitive bias, obviously, to an extent, but more so about the rival, the rival that he probably scored against and tormented and hurt. And now that He's obviously not having a good season for Real Madrid, albeit due to injury, but he's not having a good season for Real Madrid. And Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah are having great seasons again. It just helps their argument that they score goals and he's never been that much of a goal scorer. But I rate the guy so highly because he passes all the tests. 
He passes all the tests. He, by the way, has put up good statistics in his career. He put up 20 and 16 for Lille, and he was in tremendous in Ligue 1. Neymar's in Ligue 1 now. So, I mean, why is it a double standard there? Why is no one saying, well, Neymar's putting up all these crazy statistics? And by the way, it was never 20 and 16. He's never put up 20 and 16 in Ligue 1 like Azar did, and Azar did it at a way younger age. Why is no one using that for Neymar but to use it for Azar when he was at uh, France? I mean, it just it doesn't make sense. So there's double standard there. He had 16 and 15 last season in the Premier League at an Azar. 16 and 15 in the Premier League. Do you see the players around him? The, the players around him were not that good. Not superstars. Not what City have. Not what Liverpool have. To an extent, not even what Manchester United have. Hell, certainly not what Real Madrid have or Barcelona have or PSG have or Bayern Munich have. He got 16 and 15 and pretty much got sorry his first ever title. It was tremendous in the Europa League final. So this is a guy that performed no matter who was alongside him. This is a guy for Belgium who is outright the best player on the pitch when he plays for Belgium. It's not Kevin De Bruyne. It's not Romelu Lukaku. It is quite clearly Eden Hazard. And that's not biased. That's pretty factual. Whether it be at the World Cup or any time they get together, it's Eden Hazard. So he's got the statistics, like I said. He does have, and by the way, goals and assists are way too talked about. And I'm so glad we're in 2020 now and we are diving into deeper statistics. We're diving into XG. We're diving into efficiency. We're diving into not just how many dribbles did they complete, but how good is their percentage? Are they an efficient player? And the more you dive into those stats, the better Eden Hazard is. So we can talk about goals all day. Some of the best players of all time, even attacking players, didn't put up insane goal tallies, but they were efficient players. And Azar will be the first to tell you, if the assist looks better than the shot, he'll do the assist. Absolutely. And he's managed to assist a lot of players that aren't even that good. So that's the statistic side of it. The statistic side of it, he's still pretty damn good. But the eye test side of it, he passes that with flying colors. It's why defenders say he is the toughest I've ever defended. It's why Andrew Robertson said that, and he had Salah and Mane on his team, and he could have included them because he faces them in training. The question was posed to any player, not just opponent. It's why you have Benjamin Pavard saying, Azar is by far the hardest I've had to defend. It's why you have players constantly saying, no, Azar has been the toughest for me. I think Trent Alexander-Arnold just said it, or someone else in the Premier League just said it, who's faced a lot of people. Everyone, all these coaches, all these legends say Eden Hazard is right up there with the best in the world. Not Messi, Ronaldo. They're their own tier. But literally all of these people say Eden Hazard is something special. You watch him. He is efficient in how he plays, and he is absolutely unique in what he does. His durability up until this season, he was always available for games. Always available. An insane durability rate. An insane durability rate, and he's been the most fouled player in the Premier League of the last decade. So to answer the last part of your question, where do I rank him among footballers kind of in the last decade or so or just in general? I mean, I do think he was the consensus best player in the Premier League for the last decade. If you want to say Aguero, fine. But Eden Hazard was right up there, no doubt about it. And I, I don't think it's a ridiculous, ridiculous take to say he was up there. And overall... If you're not just judging players that are fit, like right this very, very second, because he won't count overall, I think he's no question a top 10 footballer. And I think it's a fair shout to say he's top five. And the tier where Messi and Ronaldo are has always been their own tier. Now, Ronaldo recently, maybe he's a little bit more human and maybe he's more down with Neymar and Lewandowski and 
Eden Hazard. Like right after last season, 16 and 15 in the Premier League and a Europa League man of the match performance for Eden Hazard, there was a good argument to say that he is right there at two, three, four, five. Not Messi, but two, three, four, five. And unless he comes back for Real Madrid when football restarts in La Liga and he just looks like a horrible player, I think he'll remain there for a little while. And I think it really is ridiculous to say anything else other than he is a footballing legend. You see what he's achieved as an individual? Oh, my God. Go on his Wikipedia and just see everything he's achieved as an individual in both leagues, in Liga and the Premier League. And then look what he's done collectively as a team. He's done it all, except for, of course, the Champions League. But he's done it all other than that. So, yeah, I rate the guy very highly, but I can back up why I rate him all day. Absolutely. And as a Liverpool fan, probably he, not not probably for me, he was probably, I mean, I, I would say the most disturbing opponent that I, I watched on TV because whenever as I had the ball, I was like frightened because I know that he could do something. And I obviously saw that in the League Cup last year. We all saw that in the League Cup last year, how he scored that amazing goal from the right side as well. So, for me, as a Liverpool fan, honestly speaking, yeah, I do get on the nerves of uh, of people sometimes saying, nah, nah, Hazard doesn't have the numbers. But that that is just banter. But honestly speaking, logically speaking, you just can't deny the effect that Eden Hazard has had on football, on the Premier League. And like you said... I think it's, it's, it's a tough tough competition between Sergio Aguero and Eden Hazard on who the best player of last decade was in the Premier League. It's a really, really tough competition and I probably can't pick one. I'd, I'd have to think a lot to pick one and I'd have to probably look at a lot of things also to pick one. But it's really tight up there. And yeah, like you said, what a player he has been. So, I mean, so yeah, that that's probably with Hazard and... And one more thing is, do you probably see another Eden Hazard-type player coming from Chelsea? Or do you think there's anyone who can probably reach that particular level in the Chelsea squad right now? Well, yeah, it's tough to say, like, of the style of Eden Hazard. I know sometimes when Pulisic is dribbling, there are some things to him that seem like Eden Hazard. But I would remind people that when Eden Hazard was Christian Pulisic's age, he had already won a league title with Lille. He had put up 20 and 16, or at least right now, like 21 is Pulisic, and Eden Hazard was in the process of doing all of that with Lille. And actually, no, he, he had already done it by Pulisic's age. So it's a big leap to say Pulisic will be Eden Hazard-like or even get to the height of Eden Hazard. But I do think Pulisic can be a star. Maybe not a superstar, but I think he can be a star. Like I think he can be a really, really good player for a Premier League team for a while. I think Callum hudson Adoy. I think he can be a superstar. I do. Obviously, some people will be naysayers and doubters and say, well, he had a good season last year with Chelsea, or at least showed a lot of promise, and then this season's gone backwards. But I think the huge reason why maybe some people are not impressed with this season is they just kind of expected him to erupt and just set the league ablaze this season. But the big injury was a huge issue. And also the fact that the injury, when you have a big injury, it sometimes then once you're back, it will 
almost cause another injury. So the hamstring was an issue. I think he got in his own mind. I think it was just kind of a tough, incomplete year for him because he started late. He didn't really ever get a preseason. Then he was thrown right into the fire. But I still think very highly of Callum Hudson-Odoi, very highly. I think he's got incredible talent. So I still think he'll hit very, very high heights. I think Mason Mount will be at least a star. I think Mason Mount can go as far as he wants to go. And I say that also because of his attitude. I think Reese James, I mean, I know he's not even close to the position that Nazar is, but I think Reese James could be one of the best footballers in the Premier League for a long, long time. Like, I think he's close to a complete footballer. So to answer your question, I do think Chelsea have some potential superstars in their squad. I've mentioned a few there. I think Loftus-Cheek, if he can ever get together at fifth season, could be one of the best players in the Premier League as well. But it's tough to say that any of them will reach Eden Hazard's height because I think you just heard how highly I rate him. I rate him as a footballing legend. I rate him as a top five player in the world. And on his day, maybe a top two player, just not messy. So I rate him insanely, insanely highly. And you can look at all the other top Premier League teams and who they've had in recent years. They may have been great, but they may have not necessarily had an Eden Hazard. So it just does show how rare he is as a player. So I guess if I were to place a bet, will one of these Chelsea players reach a top five in the world spot at any point in their career? Man, top five is tough because top five is exclusive. And you might already have a few players like Mbappe and Sancho holding down two spots and maybe some others that I'm forgetting. So I would say, to, if I were to play smart money, I would say no. None of them will be consensus top five players. But could one of them be a consensus top ten player for even just a season or two? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And then I think a good amount of them could be top 30 players, which you shouldn't sneeze at as well. So I think we have some future stars and maybe even superstars in the squad. But at an Azar level, maybe not. But I'm not sure that's needed either. Yep, and one player that's uh, really probably I would say the most the most promising youngster that Chelsea have that I would say is Mason Mount. Uh, I was speaking to Zach Lowy as well. I, I I guess you know Zach as well, and I, I was speaking to him probably on a podcast pretty a, a while ago, and he had the same uh, same view on Mason Mount. And you even saw Leo Messi come out and say or come out and praise Mason Mount as well, saying that. Mount is probably the best youngster that he's seen this season or kind of, I mean, I guess he said something similar. And yeah, and in my opinion, I would say Mason Mount is probably the guy that I think would be the best Chelsea player out of the squad that you have right now. And moving on from Chelsea now, we'll go to the Premier League, Liverpool, what a season they've had this this time. I mean, when the when the season started, you might have expected Liverpool to go toe on toe versus City once again, like they did last year. But City had a fall. Liverpool just kept on going and going and going until probably until probably recently. So was I mean I I know that gap is huge and probably the title was kind of decided long long back, but. In your view, when did you actually think that, yeah, all right, Liverpool are definitely going to win the league? There's, there's no competition right here. This title is Liverpool's. I mean, when, when was the moment that you felt like that? 
<laughs> right when the season started. No, I, I'm kidding a little bit, but I don't know, man. It's been pretty much a foregone conclusion for me for a while. I mean, when you go unbeaten for so long, you just statistically separate yourself from the rest of the pack. So I would say kind of the first moment I saw vulnerability from Manchester City because going into the season, I only ever saw City as a real threat to Liverpool, no one else. So I think I saw vulnerability with City, though, a while back, like before Christmas. I think many did. I can't really pinpoint the exact date or game, but I think it's been clear that as good as Manchester City are, and they're obviously incredible, they're incredible. They're plenty good enough to be the Premier League champion and for us to be impressed by that because that's how good they are. But they have not been perfect this season, not close. They've certainly had some ups and downs. And I think when you're this good for this long, you're going to have those ups and downs like City have had this season. So they've just looked human, and Liverpool haven't looked human. Liverpool have looked just absolutely incredible. So I would say quite early on in the season. And I, and I think I think missing out on the Premier League title last season, Liverpool, made it all the more likely they'd get it this season. I think, yeah, they win the Champions League, but they missed the chance for the double. And I think they really felt like they had unfinished business. So I wasn't surprised that when the season started, they just hit the ground running. And they have felt like they were trying to prove a point from really day one of the season. So to answer your question, insanely early on. I felt like it was Liverpool's to lose and eventually they just weren't going to lose it because it's a very focused team. I think that's the number one word I could use for that team is they're very focused. They're unified. They're exciting. They're dangerous, but they're so focused. They feel like they're all on the same page. So yeah, they've just been dominant from day one and they deserve the title and then some. Yeah. And I mean, obviously the title gap is big. So probably, I mean, you, 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 pretty much said everything that you could have or you can about that. But another team who's been really surprising this season is Leicester City under Brendan Rodgers. So, I mean, Ben Rodgers took over from Claude Puel last season and they put uh, some really good runoff. I mean, they had a really good run of games as well towards the back end of last season. Some really good players like Ricardo Pereira, Yuri Tielemann, James Madison, and obviously Jamie Vardy, who's been one of the best strikers in the Premier League since he started playing in the Premier League, I would say. He's a really underrated striker and and someone who would give everything for the team. They signed Ayose Perez in the summer, who was, again, I would say, a really tricky signing, a really good signing. And yeah, Ben Chilwell at left-back, they sold Harry Maguire for big, big, big money to United. But so Yunchu has come in. He's taken that spot. And I think Leicester's defense improved better than what they had last season too. So obviously they've improved completely and they've been a surprise package in third. But since January, they've also kind of slipped up. I mean, obviously it's Brendan Rodgers. So I expected him to probably slip up at some point of time because... I mean, I, I've been watch, I've been following Rogers closely. I, I'm a Liverpool fan, so obviously I have experience of following really closely there. But even at Celtic, although the Scottish League isn't as competitive as the others, there were few signs that he could. Pro- he was still not really, really ready for a big job. 
And yeah, and that, that that's obviously to be seen as well. I mean, they had some slip ups recently, Leicester, and they've kind of drifted far away from Liverpool and moved closer to the likes of Chelsea. I mean, Chelsea, Spurs, United, Wolves, etc. Sheffield United as well. So they also, I I don't know, I don't think they are also a sure shot top four team as of now. I would probably say City and Liverpool are definitely going to finish in a Champions League spot. One and two, I would say. Three, four, five, six is probably the positions, I would say, might interchange a lot when the season resumes. And if you look at the team, teams that Chelsea are competing against for the top, spots, top four spot, you have two spots. Leicester is there. Sheffield United, who's been really, really amazing under Chris Felder. And Manchester United, obviously, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has kind of turned around a bit after their loss against Burnley in January. They've been going under a really good spell. Bruno Fernandes' signing has really, really helped them too. And Paul Pogba returning might probably boost them even further. So, United are definitely a threat for Chelsea. Sheffield United, the way they've been playing this season, I would say they're definitely a threat. Wolves, again, a team who's really, really amazing, who's been doing amazing things the day they got promoted into the Premier League under Nuno Espirito Santo. They have a really good set of players like Raul Jimenez, Diogo Jota. Adama Traore has been special this season too. And in the midfield, they have really good players like John Moutinho, who has experience. Ruben Neves, who's relatively young, but he, he's a really good player too. So, you have a lot of competition. Arsenal and Spurs, for me, are kind of outsiders. I don't know if they are, in, in my opinion, I mean, without any disrespect, with my, in my opinion, I would say Spurs and Arsenal might not be I mean, I would say sure shot candidates for a top four spot, but Wolves, Sheffield United, Manchester United, Chelsea and Leicester. Five teams. Who do you think might finish in the third and fourth spots? Yeah, I still think Leicester will finish third. I know they were hitting some poor form before the pandemic, but they actually may have been benefited by the pandemic stopping everything and they can kind of refresh and get re-energized because like you said they have a really good squad and I think their squad is certainly good enough to finish in the top four but they should be able to hang on to that third spot fourth is obviously a lot more up for grabs Chelsea have had it almost all season and I still think they're the favorites for it just because of course yeah other teams were helped by players getting to rest and get fit like Manchester United and Spurs but so were Chelsea so as long as Frank Lampard's not too overwhelmed about all the fit players he has now, I still think they should be able to handle their business. I do. And it might benefit them that Champions League is either not happening right now or even if it were in the picture, they're down 3-0 on the aggregate with Bayern Munich. So nonetheless, it does feel like they should be able to really focus on the Premier League. And sure, they're still in the FA Cup, but who knows with that. So nonetheless, I feel like they should be pretty focused and motivated to hang on to that fourth spot. But I think Manchester United have a shot. I mean, Bruno Fernandes has certainly been a real shot of life for them. They'll also just be more and more fit with a lot of some of the, well, at least with some of their players coming back. It should be close to a fully fit squad for them. So 
they'll look a lot better on paper. I just still don't necessarily trust their whole direction yet. I think they are probably now finally moving in the right direction, Manchester United, but I don't really rate Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and I still feel like they have some holes, and they might be a little bit more dysfunctional and less cohesive than Chelsea is right now. So I don't know if that's bias talking or not, but I still feel like Chelsea are the favorites over them. But they could get, they could definitely make a good push for it. Sheffield United shouldn't be taken lightly because Sheffield United, yeah, their momentum may have been stopped, but they're still going to look at the standings and view this as a really hard race to the finish line. So they still scare me almost just as much as any of the other teams do, to be perfectly honest. You can mention Arsenal and Tottenham, and I'm not scared of Tottenham at this point. I don't think Tottenham are a threat at all to get a top four spot. I, I, Arsenal, I write a little bit more than Tottenham right now on their chances, but not really. I still think it's early days for Mikel Arteta and that whole team. So I think he's probably a good appointment. I think he could turn into a good manager. I just don't think they're serious enough yet to get into that top four. The one asterisk is, of course, is we don't really know what's going to happen with Manchester City's Champions League ban. So does fifth place all of a sudden get a Champions League spot? It might. It might. And in that case, Manchester United could be a beneficiary. Maybe Chelsea's a beneficiary of that. Maybe Sheffield United. Maybe Arsenal. But the two teams I'm most afraid of are Sheffield United and Manchester United. And I still think Chelsea are the favorites to wrap up for spot. So I would say it will remain the same Leicester City and Chelsea in third and fourth. But who knows? Yeah, foot, foot, football is pretty unpredictable at times. Not just pretty unpredictable, I'd say it's very unpredictable. I mean, obviously you can't probably predict what's going to happen tomorrow because we've had a really, really long, long break. I mean, it will be almost three months or 90 days, almost 90 days I mean, when, when, when the league resumes. So it's it's quite a huge layoff period as well. And players coming back, maybe the teams who were in high-flying form might, no, might kind of feel hard done. And you, you never know what's up with, with, with the players' morale or what happens to the team's morale as well. So... Yep, it's it's going to be really interesting. That that is one. I mean, that thing is definitely certain because the top four race is really tight, and it's going to be really interesting to see who finishes up top. And it gets a little spicy as well with City's transfer ban, like you said. I, I guess they have a hearing later this week, but yep, it's it's going to be really really interesting to see. And before we wind up the podcast, one last question for you is about your podcast, your podcasting career. I, I've come to hear that, I mean, I, I guess I heard this from your close friend, David Amoyal, that you kind of turned your podcast into a full-time job, which is really amazing, I would say. And a few words on the Byline podcast. I mean, and what was the motivation behind the Byline podcast, starting the podcast, and a few words about the guests you you've been lucky to host as well. Yeah, it's just been a crazy wild ride. I've loved every second of it. It's been going on for a little more than a year. And I certainly had high aspirations for the guests I would have on and what I would do with it. And I did hope it would turn into kind of a full-time thing for me, but it's such a competitive industry and obviously everybody has podcasts. So you can't take that for granted. You can't assume that people are just going to listen to yours or come on yours versus anybody else's. So 
you got to work your tail off. And that's something that I certainly have done. I've been working really hard on it. If I'm not recording or editing an episode, I'm usually contacting people to be on or I'm writing episodes or I'm just thinking of new things to do. So it definitely is kind of like a full-time commitment for sure. But I, with that said, have still surprised myself, I guess, to an extent with some of the guests I've had on. Like, I didn't think I'd be getting on in the first year, Martin Tyler and Howard Webb and Reese James and all these different people from the football industry. Uh, I feel like I've kind of, I think maybe what I'm most proud of, besides the work ethic and everything, is just the wide variety of guests I've had on. So from commentators to coaches to parents of players to players to football Twitter accounts to journalists, I feel like I've kind of had a, a really good wide range, referees as well. I feel like I've had a really good wide range of people. So I like that. I like that I've been able to kind of offer a little something to everyone. So even just non-Chelsea fans, even just football fans, even just Premier League fans have told me they really enjoy the podcast. So that makes me feel good. So it's been it's been a success so far. I think the one important thing is you can't get complacent, especially in this industry, especially with podcasting, because like I said, everyone has one of their own and there are so many good ones out there. So you can't get complacent and think, oh, well, I had such a great first year. I'm just going to keep my listeners and everything will be fine. No, I can't take any of that for granted. I got to keep working. I got to keep improving on my own skills, my own hosting skills my own ideas, but yeah, I've been very blessed so far. I've been really fortunate to have a lot of people help me out with guests. So like what I mean by that is I might have Peter Drury on the commentator and then Peter Drury gets me Martin Tyler. So I've been very blessed from that angle and you just can't take any of it for granted. You can feel proud of yourself, which I certainly do, but you got to keep working and that's what I plan to do. But yeah, it's been an absolute blast and my patrons make it a lot more fun, just them interacting and sending in questions. And I've had episodes where they've written the whole entire episode where all the questions I've asked to a guest, like I had Peter Drury and Ian Dark on together and the whole episode was just patron questions and it turned out to be a great episode. So yeah, I've really enjoyed the interaction and the kind of the community on Patreon. So yeah, I, I have no shortage of good things to say about how it's gone so far. And I'm even more hopeful that it will go that much better in year two. Any any tips or any advice that you'd like to give to our listeners who probably want to start out their own podcasts, even if they don't get in the level of yes, you have definitely. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, work ethic is huge. You have to work on it. So you have to work on yourself, on how you speak on the podcast. You have to work on how you set up the podcast, how you organize the podcast, how you prepare for the podcast. If you want to have guests, you don't have to have guests, but you got to work on that. You can't just say, contact a few guests, feel good that you got them, and then not continue that while you even have them because then the next couple of weeks you won't have guests. So you got to work whatever you want the podcast to be. You have to work on it around the clock. But that's really segueing me to the most important advice is you have to make a podcast that you would want to listen to. Because if you're not making a podcast that you feel like you wouldn't want to listen to, that's probably coming off to the listener and it's not going to make for a very entertaining listen. So normally when I tune into a podcast, I want to feel like the people who are doing it, of course, are enjoying it, but that they're prepared for it, that they wanted to be prepared for it. 
that doesn't mean you need to have loads of information and statistics. And it doesn't have to be this robotic thing where you're reciting stuff. But it needs to sound like you didn't just walk in after being at the beach all day and decided, you know what, I'll turn on my microphone and I'll start talking. No, it's got to sound a little bit more prepared than that. It can still sound fun and free-flowing, and it can have less structure. It doesn't have to be super structured, but it has to feel like it has a purpose, and it has to feel like you, the host, are enjoying it. So with that said, you have to really get comfortable on a microphone, and you have to keep at it. You have to have consistency. The more you do it, the easier it becomes, and you have to prepare. So that's really the number one thing I would say is do a podcast that you would want to listen to. Hey, if you'd like to listen to a podcast from two random guys who spent the whole day at the beach and they just randomly walk into their studio or their room half drunk and they start talking on a podcast, fine. Then, baby, that is the podcast you want to do. But I promise you, there's not a huge audience for that. Whatever genre it is, whether it's football or something else, people are going to want to sound, people are going to want to hear a person, two people, three people, whatever, talk about something they know a decent amount about that they're passionate about, so they're having fun, and that they're prepared and informed about. So, yeah, just you have to keep that in mind. The number one thing I've been saying to myself recently when I do an episode or while I'm recording with a guest is, okay, is this an episode I would enjoy if I was the listener? Am I asking the questions that I really want to hear? Don't ask the questions that you think you're supposed to ask. Ask the questions that you want to ask, that you want to know the answers to. There's no rules to podcasting. That's the beauty of it. It's not radio. There are no rules to podcasting. So literally, if you have a funny, silly question you want to ask the guest, ask them that. Because chances are, one of your listeners wants to know that too. So that would be my number one piece of advice. Do a podcast that you would want to listen to. Forget anyone else and what you think you're supposed to do. Do a podcast that you would want to listen to. And then on top of that, just I would say in order to do that, or if you are doing that, you got to have consistency. You got to have consistency, whether you put out one episode every two weeks, one a week, two a week, one a month, whatever it is, be consistent at that so your listeners know when to expect your episodes. But number one piece of advice, do a podcast that you would want to listen to. Amazing there. Amazing. Uh, I like adding the advice. Probably I would also take some of them in into my head because some of them are, I mean, some of the things that you mentioned there are something that we've not followed here properly at Peanut Megasys so far, but we intend to from this month or we started that from last month itself, but thank you so much once again for all the advice and thank you so much for coming on to the show, talking football, talking Chelsea, talking Premier League and, you know, it's always a pleasure to have someone really special on our podcast. It's been a really special episode for me. And this is definitely one of my favorite episodes as well. Because I've enjoyed the discussion. I know that I'm a Liverpool fan. And I do like to talk about other Premier League clubs too. And it's it's really been an enjoyable podcast for me. So thank you so much, Alex. Appreciate you coming on to the show. Oh, my pleasure, man. Had a blast. And yeah, it's always good to kind of talk to a fan of another team and see eye to eye with them for at least a little while so yeah thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and thank you to all our listeners as well because this podcast becomes a success only if you listen to it and thank you so much for all the support you've given us 
and i know that we've opened uh, we've recently opened a patron page and we've got two patrons so far and i'm very thankful to all the patrons thank you so much for you no know, showing your faith on us and until next episode bye bye